Welcome to Sex Positive Families, where parents, caring adults, and advocates come to grow and learn about sexual health in a supportive community. I'm your host and the founder of SPF, Melissa Carnegie. Join me and special guests as we dive into the art of sex positive parenting. Together, we will shake the shame and trash the taboos to strengthen sexual health talks with the children in our lives. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, families. We have made it to the 10th episode, and I want to thank you so much for joining us on this journey. The support and response has been so positive as we're having conversations that shine light on diverse experiences and strategies as they relate to sexual health within families. And this episode is definitely no exception. I talk with Kevin Patterson, educator, speaker, and author about polyamory. And for those new to this, polyamory is the state or practice of maintaining multiple romantic and or sexual relationships at the same time with the awareness and consent of all folks involved. Kevin is the creator of an online forum called Poly Role Models and has recently authored a book called Love's Not Colorblind, Race and Representation in Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities. Kevin shares with us his own journey toward polyamory, why representation is so important in this community, and what parenting in a polyamorous family can look like. Let's have a listen. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you doing? I am doing well. We are excited to have you on the SPF podcast. So just want to get started with, why don't you tell us a little bit about the journey toward polyamory and towards the work that you're doing now? My journey with polyamory started with um, my then-girlfriend, now wife. We just sort of stumbled into, like, some group activity, let's say. And it turned into a a lot of, like, really meaningful conversations about what we wanted to do with the exclusivity in our relationship or whether we wanted exclusivity at all. And we decided not to. Basically, we found ourselves open and we decided to stay open. And that turned it, that looked a, a bunch of different ways over the course of several years before we found like a polyamory community and resources and books and articles. And it sort of, we were able to figure out that there was a term for something we had already been doing for over a decade. We found out that there was a community where we could sort of find like an established culture and language and just sort of put it together, which was awesome. But it was really white spaces that we would find ourselves in and when we started talking about uh sort of the lack of people of color that we would find in in these spaces we started talking about it and people were listening because they felt the same way and it just became a sort of a niche i I was talking people were listening i was writing people were reading and it became um, a really ongoing thing leading up to uh, the book that I'm putting out. You also, uh, you all have a family. You have some children in your life. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Um, I have uh, two, two children, two daughters, ages seven and five. Awesome. There are a lot of myths and misconceptions out there. Um, I found in terms of people's understanding of polyamory, um, some of those that seem common are that people thought that pe- that folks that were in polyamorous relationships feared commitment or that they're cheating or that um, it's folks that just want to have a lot of sex or that it's just for white people. So <laughs> what would you say to some of these myths? 
Well, um, addressing them sort of, I guess, in order, um, the idea that it's people who are avoiding commitment is sort of a, is sort of a silly thing in that it looks like it's basically based on the per, uh, the premise that commitment only looks one way, mm-hmm. and we commit to so many different things in our lives in so many different ways. I mean, you go to the gym and you commit to lifting weights and doing cardio, but no one ever says that you've got to choose one or the other, you know? Being polyamorous isn't a fear of commitments. It's the willingness to make multiple commitments. Mm -hmm. And there are people in my life who have been in my life for years and been with my wife for 16 years. I've got partners that I've been with for, for three or five or however long. And none of them are diminished by the fact that I'm with other people. It's just we have separate commitments, looking for separate things. And that's just fine. The idea that it's just cheating, I mean, cheating is just a basic breakdown of rules, a breakdown of agreements, a breakdown of boundaries. If you're all on the same page, there is no cheating that is occurring. I mean, just sort of basic by definition, point by point. And there are people who don't have sex in their polyamorous relationships at all. Um, It's it gets really easy to break it down into like who's doing who if you don't know what you're really talking about or you don't know what you're looking at. But people understand emotional responses. People understand emotional connections to to multiple folks. People have multiple friends. People have multiple kids, multiple parents. There are there are folks who fall in love with that hot coworker, knowing full well that they're going to go home to their spouse who they also love. Polyamory just says we're going to be open and honest about this. Sometimes that's something that will include sex. Sometimes it's something that will include romance. And sometimes it's not. And that's okay. Part of what I love about polyamory, just sort of in general, is that it's customizable enough. We can all sort of get in where we fit in, where I'll have relationships that do or don't include sex. I'll have relationships that do or don't include romance. Uh, Some of my partners are involved in my kids' lives, and some of them don't want anything really to do with my kids. And, And that's fine as long as we're on the same page with what it is we're looking for. And that makes perfect sense. And, you know, our society from early on, you know, really programs us in really strategic ways. Oh, know, definitely. To, to kind of see thing, marriage, you know, having children, having this a nuclear family. And again, in the heterosexual construct, it's it feels as though um, many people are not prepared to think of relationships in these ways, at least that kind of primary romantic relationship. We can think of friends that way, but that primary love relationship, we're just not prepared for that often. And it's it's really the one thing, the only thing that irks me about monogamy is just that it's approached so often from uh, from a standard perspective, like a a default setting perspective, where I I know people who argue about what they're going to get on their pizzas. You know, I've, I've, I've had, I've had friends who argue about where are we going to raise our kids? What religion, you know, what, what kind of education do they want? But they never stop and ask, what do you want out of the exclusivity of this relationship? They just assume that everyone is on the same page there. Uh, No one ever asked the question, what are we going to do in the event of an infidelity? Because if you say that, you're threatening the idea of an infidelity. And then if it happens, when it happens, because it happens in a lot of our relationships, you know, people don't know what to do there. People don't have, they haven't had a chance to really condition their emotional responses. They haven't really had a chance to like figure out what they want out of that situation. 
the the marriage rate right now is something like 50 percent you know um and, and i'm sure of those 50 percent that are staying married there's some infidelity going on there as well right. and no one there's no one's having these sort of hard conversations about what they do and don't want out of the structure of their relationship it's just use the term that aggie says popularizes it's the relationship escalator you meet with somebody, you begin dating, you date exclusively, you get married, have kids, and then you die. And that's, you know, seen as this perfect relationship. And no one wants to step off of that or look at the options or look at what the pitfalls even are. Right. We're conditioned many times to see our self-worth through in relation to another yeah. and, and not separate from that. And I think that that sets us up for for failure or for conflict in relationships but it, it seems that in, in in successful polyamorous relationship there's an acknowledgement right that we are individuals and we need to be fed as individuals and that that can also mean that romantically we are not um the sole always the sole providers of of that nurturing is yeah. there any other partner? Yeah, I mean it's it's really important to sort of get get that as an idea that we're not we're not solely responsible for all of the needs of a of a partner and that our partners aren't solely responsible for all of our needs. It's mm-hmm. it's such an easy way to fracture a relationship when you're putting up the burden of everything on one person or if you're just putting the burden of one thing on a partner that's not suited to to respond to that. Right, exactly. So let me ask you this, how, um, how open are you and your wife to kind of your, your extended family about your polyamorous relationship? There was a point in our relationships where my wife and I started going to uh, local meetups. We started hanging out with a, with a polyamorous crowd. We had gotten into some relationships, especially on my end, gotten into some relationships that were really valuable to the point where we didn't want to have to pass them off mm-hmm. as, you know, that's a friend of mine, you know, right. when this is someone who I love and care about. So at that point, and this was like several years ago, we came right on out where my wife told her, her told her folks and I told mine and she got a pretty favorable uh, reception and I did not, mm. but we're, there's no way we're going back in the closet. We're, we're out, we're aggressively out at this point. So our, our polyamory is who we are and what we're doing. That's beautiful. And, and I imagine, you know, having that kind of united front, I think I saw you all have tattoos. Is that correct? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, I designed a couple of tattoos. My wife got one that was like a real, like, and if you, you know, polyamory, a lot of times uses a, like an infinity heart, mm-hmm. an infinity symbol laid over a heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife got one that's very flowery and lovely. She got mm-hmm. it um, on her back, right between her shoulder blades. And I actually use that as the logo for poly role models. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I got one that's, um, there's a video game series, Assassin's Creed. Mm-hmm. I've been a fan of the logo of that series for for a great many years. Mm-hmm. I turned the logo upside down and fashioned it into a sort of a stylized heart. Mm-hmm. And then put the same infinity logo, the same infinity symbol that my wife has. I used the same one on my own. And so now we have, you know, we've got these pseudo matching tattoos. Nice, nice. Why is race, you know, diversity and representation, why is it so important in the conversation of polyamory? 
we get these um these sort of terms like I'm 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 a hip hop kid. I I, mm-hmm. I grew up on all, I grew up on all the greats, the Run DMCs, the NWAs, the Rockhams, the Karas ones, mm-hmm. and we get these terms every once in a while in in um in black and urban pop culture where it'll be like. OPP, um, the Naughty by Nature song. Other you'll get like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you'll get like Jump Off and Side Chick and a couple other terms. And so, like, non monogamy is a thing, but is it ethical non monogamy? Is it consensual non monogamy? Is it polyamory? Not really. We don't really get to that point in some of these conversations. And part of that ends up being a representational thing. Where growing up as a growing up as a young black kid, it gets really easy to turn on the TV and see things that are only represented by white folks, and then think that kind of thing isn't for me. Yeah. Whether it is or it isn't, it can be something that would provide my soul with the maximum amount of fulfillment. Right. But if I turn on TV, turn on the TV every day, and I see it only represented by white folks, that might be something I never ever try. And polyamory fits into that same place where. The immediate question is, isn't that white people shit? Right. And I mean, up in th- that's a question I've been asked multiple times by friends. It's been friends, casual acquaintances. There's a uh, a TV show on HBO called Insecure, starring yes. Issa Rae, mm-hmm. and in a very recent episode, or not very recent, in an episode in this latest season, the the question of non monogamy is explored, and Issa Rae's character immediately asked that question. Is it that white people shit? Mm-hmm. And it's actually a, a name of one of the chapters of my book because it happens so frequently. There aren't as many people of color involved in non-monogamous communities and non-monogamous spaces, events, conferences. And part of that is because there are people who don't even know that that's an option in their relationships. Right. Myself, I'm a person of color. I'm of mixed you know, backgrounds in terms of black and Latina, but I absolutely did not grow up with this lens or with this understanding. Uh, My parents definitely had affairs and, you know, ultimately that led to demises, you know, of their relationship. And so I grew up seeing this conflict, you know, um, and thinking that these were like normal patterns of behavior in relationships and that, you know, if you love someone, if you really love someone, you'll fight for them. And, you know, it just, it was, it was really conflict laden and it took me a long time. You know, I'm now approaching my forties and it's taken me a long time and more than one relationship (laughs) to really break out of that and learn some new ways of looking at relationships yeah. And I know that I'm I'm not alone in that. You know, there again you said with the divorce rate being so high, you know that we uh, we really have a lot of work to do to broaden our perspective and and options and opportunity here. The um the other thing that that that, that you hear a lot of is if you love someone, you can't even fall in love with somebody else. Like yeah. if you truly love them, that everyone else becomes immediately unattractive. Everyone mm-hmm. else becomes immediately uninteresting and that's just not the case and just having the options just having the resources uh to know that maybe there's something else going on here other than monogamy or other than strict monogamy just knowing that that's an option can make you feel like you're not broken when you know how much you love your partner Mm -hmm. but also know how much you love somebody else who isn't that person that you've already committed to Something that comes up in uh, in my blog a lot 
there are so many times I read people who say, you know, my, my blog is an interview series and people write about their experiences as polyamorous. And you get a lot of people who write in and say, I knew that, that making a, a lifelong commitment to one person didn't make sense to me at age 16. But I didn't know I had the option to do anything other than that until age 30. You know, and that's something that happens all the time. One of my very favorite stories, somebody wrote into my blog and said, I was a teenager in high school, I was going out with person A, and then I decided to break up with them to go out with person B. We went on one good, you know, we went on one date. It wasn't good. It wasn't good. I didn't want to go out with person B and person A wouldn't have me back. <laughs> so now I made the decision I would never make that sort of choice again. And they were in, they were in high school. The longer you go without having the wherewithal to make that statement, the more miserable you'll be when you have to make that statement. When you finally decide, when you finally figure out, you know, maybe this maybe this monogamy thing just isn't a good fit for me. Like it's good for other people, but maybe it's just not what I need in my life. The longer it takes for you to figure that out, like that's that's soul crushing if you're figuring it out way late in the game when you know when your dating life is pretty much over. Yeah, totally. And then that also introducing that uh, there are a lot of people who later in life have children at that point in yeah. their lives. And so there can be a myth, misconception that uh, relationship styles such as polyamory is not healthy for children. Can you speak to that? I mean, just personal experience, I'll say that kids are blank slates and mm -hmm. the whole idea of what is and isn't healthy to kids, and uh, unless we're talking like objective thing, like like right. really, you know, like fire, fire is unhealthy <laughs> to kids. Like that's, you know, you can say that, but there's so many things that we call unnatural or unhealthy to kids. Kids are a blank slate unless, until we put our, our politics and our agendas on them, like kids accept and loved everything you know they they don't want to take naps and that's about it <laughs> and when it comes to like our the polyamory like we didn't have to have a long conversation with our kids explaining it breaking things down we have a lot of people at our house just in general whether that's friends or family or partners people just hanging out people watching tv people who are you know spending the night we have people at the house and our kids were really good at picking up their the level of familiarity there mm -hmm. to the point where my older daughter when she was maybe like three was pulling my partners aside and saying like hey do you love my dad oh. we didn't have to have that conversation she just picked up on it and asked questions when her, when my back was turned mm -hmm. she, she she got it on her own the only the only time that we've actually had to explain it to the um, to our kids is that there was a point where I was interviewed for a local newspaper and I was really excited about it and I showed my daughter and I said I got my uh, I'm doing this blog and people are excited about it and mm -hmm. they put me in a newspaper. She asked me what the blog was about, why anyone cared about me, and why anyone would want to read it, mm -hmm. and I just said, you know how we love you, and when your sister was born. We still love her. We love her and we still love you. She was like, yeah. It's like, well, I love your mom. I love my girlfriend. And for some people, that's a weird thing. So that's what, that's what I write about. And she's like, oh, okay. I love my family. And then she kept it moving. She picked up her toys and went and played in some other room. It wasn't a big deal for her because, like, that's her norm. She's always grown up with other people around, other responsible adults that care about her. And so it wasn't a strange thing when that continued or that, you know, it was more strange that someone recognized 
it was more strange to her that people thought that that was strange. Yeah, yeah. Have they intersected with any commentary, adverse commentary, you know, from outsiders, any uh, peers or other family members or anything that they've had to confront with that? Um, no, that, as far as we know, that has, they haven't heard anything, but like my, I do, I'm sort of the A parent in, in, in our situation. I do most of the pickups and drop-offs from, from school. A lot, a large part of my job is to keep my kids from, uh, driving my wife, driving my wife <laughs> wild. So I, I end up being sort of the A parent and everyone else is just sort of a, you know, a check-in parent. My wife my wife checks in, my girlfriend checks in, like my partners, they check in, they they give me a break more than I give them a break. So they're not as visible in parenting as, as I am. The closest thing that we've had to like some interaction based on, on school, one day I pick up my older daughter from school and she's remarking about how some of her, her classmates have multiple same-sex parents where she's like well that kid she's got two dads and that boy he's got two moms mm-hmm. so i want two dads and two moms and we were like all right we'll, we'll work on that for you i guess <laughs> you know we sort of laughed it off but that was about as close as she's had to like connecting our relationships our relationship style to anything she had going on to school yeah it sounds like and you know i have uh three kids in the home as well um they range from age four all the way up to 18 and you know i can attest to this as well but it sounds like you know our kids just want to know that they're loved and that they're safe yes as many people that are willing to provide that love and safety they're generally on board with that (laughs) And they have really good instincts, you know, they really know when it's some, something feels right or doesn't. Exactly, exactly. Um, there was a point where my, my mother, who has never really been supportive of my non-monogamy, she said, you should keep it away from your kids because they're going to think it's weird. And I'm like, well, this is their norm. These are the people in their lives. And she's like, oh, well, they're okay now, but when they get older, they're going to see it as weird. And I'm like, so they're going to all of a sudden find their surroundings to be unsuitable. Like all these people around them that, that love them, they're going to decide, wait a minute, I shouldn't be getting this amount of love. There shouldn't be this many (laughs) responsible adults who care about me. Get these responsible adults out of here. That's, that's not going to happen. Right. So what advice would you have to folks or families who are intrigued by polyamory and want to give it a try, want to open themselves up to this? What I would say is do the research. We, we're sort of at this really quality time where there's a lot of books, there's a lot of podcasts, there are meetups, there are online communities. There's a lot of ways that you can sort of learn what the pitfalls are before before hopping in and making mistakes because the mistakes are almost always with people's hearts and that's not what you, that, that's not what you want to damage. Mm-hmm. One of the most commonly sought structures within polyamory is a triad mm-hmm. where it'll end up being you know some some couple who decides they want to open up their relationship and add a partner who they can both date mm-hmm. and it 
it sounds entry level. It sounds really easy. It sounds like something like, oh, well, you know, and a lot of most times it's, you know, uh, hetero couples and the guy doesn't have to worry about uh, being afraid of another guy, toxic masculinity, territoriality. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The woman can explore her bisexuality without having to leave the relationship that she's already comfortable in. And it sounds really entry level, but like that's something that's so hard to achieve and so hard to maintain it's asking an awful lot out of the person that uh that they're seeking to date but because it sounds entry level it's the thing that people decide they want to jump right into but if you like do a bunch of research you'll find like no that's actually really difficult to do it's really difficult to pull off and so the way it ends up being is we're in such a time of resources and articles and TED Talks where you can learn about all of these common pitfalls and figure things out without having to make the common mistakes that end up breaking people's hearts, that end up jilting ex-girlfriends and turning people against polyamory in general. Right. Yeah. And, and I hear also, too, that um, in, in that there's a lot of community, right? There's a there it sounds like there are a lot of growing and strong communities around polyamory. Yes. Yes. Which is important Absolutely. for support. Um, and so you talk about resources, you talk about books. So what excites you most? What are you most proud of about your upcoming book, Love's Not Colorblind? Um, well, what I'm most proud of really is that when I was writing it and when I started talking, I wasn't really sure that I could change the landscape. It wasn't, I didn't really think it would fall to me to change the landscape. It was just something, I was just talking about my experiences and I just never stopped talking, you know? Mm -hmm. When I go to events in my local area now, they look different. The amount of people of color who are there, the amount of people who are active and and, uh, and participating, it looks so much different now than when I got started, say, two or three years ago. And just seeing that and knowing that I played a part in that and knowing that I can continue to play a part with that in terms of um, having a book and having a blog and and, like, and, and remaining um, sort of visible, knowing that I can change that and make things more comfortable, not just in my local area, but anywhere where I can appear as a resource, that it's, it's amazing and it's so valuable. And I, it, it means so much to me to know that I can help anybody do anything. Absolutely. that oh, I love that. And so as we wind down here, what does sex positivity mean to you? To me, it means not having to guess where I didn't have sex positivity. Like I don't, I didn't recognize it as a concept growing up. It's like sex education for me when I was a kid meant a bunch of videos or pictures of diseases Mm -hmm. and teachers who weren't really into the, into the topic, trying to teach us stuff that they didn't want to teach us. And I would have loved to learn about it from a place of positivity where it was like, hey, this is a thing you should do. This is a thing you should be knowledgeable about because if you do it and you do it wrong, it can cause consequences. But if you do it right, it can be something awesome that your life is made out of. And I wish I had had that. Instead, you know, I had really crappy sex ed classes and smuggled copies of Penthouse. <laughs> I, that's not really what I wanted my, I mean, I feel like I turned out okay, however cliche that sounds, <laughs> but I'm sure that I have friends that I grew up with. I'm sure that I have classmates that I was around who got the same education that I did and turned out 
not nearly as well adjusted as I did. And that shouldn't even be an option. We should all be able to approach approach sex from a place of positivity. And, and I want to point out, too, it sounds like a, a good core theme um, that sounds like it makes this work is communication and in terms of polyamory and sex positivity is just really owning your truth and being able to communicate that um, respectfully ethically with with others yeah absolutely and so what projects are you most excited about looking at 2018 well, first and foremost, uh, the, the the book, which is called Love is, Love is Not Colorblind, Race and Representation in Polyamorous and Other Alternative Communities. Um, it's an extension of a workshop that I've been giving around the country uh, about the, how race in, in intersects with polyamory, uh, what it looks like in our communities, what it looks like in our individual relationships. For the last three or so years, uh, going into its fourth year now, I've been doing a blog called Poly Role Models. Poly Role Models is available at Tumblr. It is an interview series where people talk about how they got into polyamory, what they're good at, what they're terrible at, how they rebound from the things that they're terrible at, and what what self-identities are important to them and how those impact their polyamory. Like I said, it's been, it's in its, it's going into its fourth year right now. It's mm-hmm. the most inclusive and diverse uh, showcase of polyamory available anywhere. It's been a labor of love, and it's taken me to a lot of it. Take, it's taken me to a lot of places. This year, I'm doing a a book tour, so I can feel like saying like mm-hmm. Poly Role Models is taking me around the country on this book tour. I'm gonna be all over the Pacific Northwest. I'm gonna be in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, up and down the East Coast, New York, Philadelphia, D.C., Atlanta, Asheville, North Carolina. I'm going to be in the South, in the Southwest, um, Albuquerque, Tucson. The best places to find me in my work right now is probably the Facebook page, which is just Facebook slash Facebook.com slash Poly Role Models. And that's where I keep an updated event calendar that's where i share all of my posts from the tumblr page and i also like to promote the other people who have appeared in poly role models because they offer so many resources in terms of sex education and polyamory awareness and some of them are just awesome people so i like keeping people up on what they're doing whenever possible Thank you so much for all that you do. It's obviously, you know, a labor of love and of community. And it is, like you said, changing uh, the landscape and creating opportunities for everyone. Um, And it's not just white people shit. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Um, uh, We will definitely include links to all of your platforms in the show notes and also to where you can get a copy of his book. We look forward to seeing seeing what more you have in store because we know that that's not it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. If you like this episode and podcast, please leave a review in iTunes or Google Play so more people can find us. And you can always visit us on our website at sexpositivefamilies.com. There you can shop sex positive swag in our online store, connect with us across our social media platforms, register for our latest workshops, and learn more resources to help support sexual health in your family. 
Until next time, I'm Melissa Carnegie. Thank you for supporting content that strengthens sexual health talks in families.